Well, good morning. How many guys have been able to see the movie Captain Phillips? Anybody here? Throw your hands up real quick. How many guys actually uh, researched what happened with the Captain Phillips? Anybody else do that right now? Yeah, okay. So you guys got the same experience I did. My wife and I, a few weeks ago, actually dove in and uh, watched Captain Phillips. We like movies. We actually love movies that are based on true stories. It's something about it that's so much more inspirational, so much more impactful. When you, when you look at what's going on, you go, okay, we know this has been Hollywoodized, you know, in a sense, but we are excited that this fits into the range of what could have actually occurred. And in the case of Captain Phillips, we kind of win it. We're like, oh, that's interesting. Let's look it up. We start looking into his life and looking into the stuff and all the disputes that are going on, all the infighting that's happening there. And we were like, oh man, is this based on a true story or is this based on his story? You know, and that's kind of how that stuff works out. You ever had that experience where, you know, it's based on a true story or maybe it's loosely based on a true story or it's inspired by a true story. You know, each of those is a Hollywood way of telling you we got further and further away from the real thing that happened. You know what I'm saying? And so the, um, the reality is that a good story is powerful when it's true. And the Bible is one of those books that has inspired us over and over and over again with the stories in it and the texts in it and the movement of the drama that's found within Scripture, within the Bible, can be so impacting in and of itself. But really the question that we've been asking in this series is, so what? So it's a good story. That's nice. It's emotional. It's moved us. We watch lots of those on the big screen. What is this based on a true story? Inspired by a true story? I mean, when you get down to the inspired by a true story or loosely inspired by a true story, you're just like, oh, this is a true story. And then flies a dragon and out flies. You're like, what is that? If you've ever had that experience where something odd happens in one of those movies, and you're going, I don't get what's going on here. That's how people feel about this book. They're reading it and they're like, good story, good story. Miracle happens. Like, what is that? Is this based on a true story or loosely based on a true story? Anybody ever ask yourself that question? Yes. Hello? <laughs> Hang on. What's going on here? All right. Oh, you guys are here. Okay. So um, the, um, the reality really is, is that many of us in this room don't doubt this text. Let's be honest. There are a few of you who might have been invited this morning. We're glad that you're here because you've heard we're kind of examining and taking a look at, at what faith is and where it begins. And a lot of people in our culture, believe, again, they believe that faith is a, do- a leap into a dark chasm, kind of a blind, a blind faith in a sense. If I believe it, therefore it's true. The less amount of proof I have, the more I believe it kind of reality. And we've been saying that's not the biblical term of faith at all. There's no magic involved. It's not involved in this kind of I believe whatever I want to believe stuff. It is literally based on evidence. And then it's our trusting in that evidence that, that enables us forward. What we've been doing in this series is this. There, up here behind me is going to be this, um, this kind of chart. We've been asking you to think about the text and think about the information I'm giving you just so you can move one step towards certainty, one more step towards certainty. Because eventually you're going to get to the place where you have enough things that you're certain of that you can then place your trust in it. You can be, you can trust it. You can have faith in it. And that's the point here. That's what we're doing is we're moving bit by bit. We began with a conversation on Easter about the resurrection and examining the resurrection. We looked at the four minimal evidences that are agreed upon by scholars and and basically looked at the different stories that could answer where do these four minimal evidences come from? And, um, the only answer that fits all of them is the resurrection story of the Bible. And so we wind up with this kind of like, huh, that's interesting. And some of us would say, that was, that was awesome. I'm ready. I, I can trust God now. I can trust in Jesus Christ. Others of us were like, nah. 
and we're struggling with it because we don't even know if God exists or the supernatural happens. And so last week we looked at the, we examined Genesis chapter one. We examined the broadest terms that we could of observations, not getting into the camps. And we started examining the fact that God does indeed exist. We saw it in the philosophy. We saw it in the science. We saw it laid out in the fact that there's this seems to be this world that's set up ready for animals. And we looked at the, some of the scientific evidence for how finely tuned the universe is and stuff like that. When we looked at DNA and the evidence of human, of the existence of human beings, all these pieces pulling together to say, look, from the beginning to now, there's got to be something that put this all together, something personal, something intelligent. And that something is God. And when we tied God there, it doesn't necessarily, however, tie God to the resurrection. Um, in my life, uh, about a month and a half ago, got to have a, or sorry, a year and a half ago, I got, a, got to have a nice uh, lunch with a friend of mine here, who's here. And he doesn't really believe in God. And we were kind of discussing that conversation a little bit and kind of entering in. So why? Because I'm always curious, like, what was the evidence that led you to not believe in God? Why did you wind up in the direction that you did? To me, that's an interesting topic. And when it came down to it, we worked through some things. And he said, look, one of my problems is that if you open up the door for God... Any God could exist at that point. Not just your God. I mean, why, why not the Norse mythologies? Why not all of the pantheon of the Norse gods? We've got Loki and those guys. Why aren't they there? Or, or, or why can't we just turn around and then believe that, you know, Zeus and Hera and all of them are having a blast? And In fact, they all exist then. Why not just say everything? If there's a supernatural world, everything exists. You can't tie the creator God to your religion just like that. And it's a great point. You can't just tie the creator God and say, well, that's that. look, God created and wham, Jesus resurrected. Proof of Christianity right there. Well, who's saying that some other God's not fooling with us and bringing Jesus back to life or some, uh, something else is going on? Well, how do we link these two? How do we know who this creator God is? And it's to there that I want to dive in this morning. And I think we begin to see that in a particular book called the book of Exodus. If you will, grab your Bibles and, and go to that, Exodus chapter 20. Um, it's going to be up here on the screen, Exodus 20 verse 1. But you can go to that section. And it's an important text because we're going to be kind of looking around here in Exodus. And what's important about the text is that this verse states something very clearly. It says, and, the Lord, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, if you were to read the book of Exodus, and I'm not going to assume that you guys have read the whole book of Exodus, but those of you who have, you'll, you'll know the story. Those of you who haven't, I'm going to give you kind of the Cliff Notes version here. So, Gen- Genesis ends with this guy, Joseph, who has uh, basically saved Israel, or saved all of Egypt by, by doing some great stuff in, in helping, house, um, helping house food and stuff and help people through the famine. Now, it comes about a time at the beginning of the book of Exodus that this guy's forgotten and all the good things that Israel had done for Egypt was gone. And so they decided, hey, we're going to enslave these guys. They're big. There are a lot of them. Uh, they're living in Goshen. We don't like this. And so they enslaved them, start working on a couple of cities with them. And uh, a guy named, uh, and then they keep growing. And they say, well, let's kill off the babies. And, and so they keep one little baby alive um, by putting him in a river named Moses. And Moses floats down the river, is picked up by, a, uh, by one of the Pharaoh's daughters and raised in Pharaoh's household, which is interesting considering the name Moses is a very common 
common name in the households of Egypt, um, especially in the kings. You've heard the name Ramesses, Ramses. Anybody heard of Ramses? Say yes. All right. That last part, it's Moses, Ra, Moses. That's what it means, Ramses. So Moses is a very similar term for Egyptian names. So it's not uncommon that you find this name Moses there. So suddenly you got this guy, Moses, who murders somebody, kicked out of the country, or basically runs. And then he's out in the bush um, doing some shepherding stuff, and God shows up in a burning bush and says, Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let the people go. There's a new Pharaoh. The other one died. And he's like, oh, I don't want to do this. And this whole conversation ensues. And so he goes in and, the, and God does this great work, bringing all the people of, the, of Israel out of slavery, cross the Red Sea, where you've seen that in the movies, Prince of, uh, Prince of Egypt, all that, uh, you know, Ten Commandments, all that stuff. The sea parts, they walk through, they come to the mountain of, uh, the, mountain of the laws, Mount, um, Mount Sinai. And this is what the Lord speaks from there. He says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he lays into the Ten Commandments, just lays them out for everybody to hear. What's interesting about this is what's going on in this text. He identifies himself. God says, here's who I am. I am the Lord. We'll explain what that word means in a minute. Your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am this particular God. I'm the one who's done this great work that's just happened. And I'm the one who's going to give you this moral law. This is who I'm talking about. This is me. And so he's identifying himself by the exodus. So we want to start there. And so what's interesting is that he, in this text, he actually reveals himself as the creator God and revealing himself to one group of people, namely the Jews. And so he's saying, I'm the creator God and I'm showing you. So go ahead and go to that first point for me. Thank you. And uh, what we run into here is beginning here in Exodus chapter 314. While Moses was out there at the bush dealing with, all the, dealing with all the sheep and stuff, one of the bushes comes on fire and he walks up to it kind of amazed because it doesn't burn up. And then God speaks to Moses, tells him, takes off his sandals. You're going to go to see, you're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him to let my people go. And, and basically you're going to go, I don't, and he, Moses says, I don't think so. My mind, I'm sorry, my mind just went off on Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Oh, baby, let my people, because my son Andrew sings it all the time. So, sorry, side note. The point is simply this. Moses comes to this point where he says, I can't do it. God says, I'll be with you. He says, I can't do it. Besides, if I go to them, who am I going to tell them that I'm, that I'm coming from? What's your name that I'm going to tell them? That's an important question for the ancient Near Eastern world. To know the name of the God was to be able to call upon him for help and aid. And so when they were going to say, well, what's the name of your God? What's the name of this God? It was important that he was willing to share it with them. And so God says this, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is interesting. Of all the names that God could pick, of all the names that were available for a God, he could have picked you know, God of the North, Baal Zephon, which is what is one of the names out there. Names Lord of the North. He could have picked Lord of the Lightnings, like Zeus was Lord of Lightning. He could have, or or Thor, or he could have been Odin. He could have been. He could have picked any name he wanted to pick that would have defined him as some great and powerful being. But he picks I am, that I am. 
Well, this is really fascinating, actually, because you got to understand, philosophy was not an art at the time. It wasn't even a science. Philosophy was going to come, really be kind of codified in, in Greece, coming in a few years, a couple, uh, like maybe a hundred years, with Aristotle and Socrates and these guys. This, this, this is radically odd, because God is literally saying, you want to know who I am? I'm the existent one. I'm one who's always existed. I'm the one who has existence within me. I am who I am. Or it could be translated, I am that I am. And what's interesting about this is when we talk about the creator, we say that all this stuff about well, all these cause and effects and all this stuff we went in last week, if we were to bottom line it all, all we're looking for is for the one that started it all, the one that has existence in itself to give it away so that you could exist and I could exist. If something isn't existence, they can't give it away. And here, this God shows up and says, listen, I'm the one that exists. I am that I am. I am who I am. I'm not defined by anything but myself. I'm not the God of wind and the God of mountains and the God of of stars. No, I am who I am. That's a radical statement in a world filled with gods that were like control buttons because you needed him to keep the sea good because you were a merchant. Or you needed him to keep your crops growing because you were a farmer. Or you needed him to, give, to, to let your wife have children because you were a dad and you wanted to have more kids for the farm. All of this stuff fills in. That's how you use the gods. This is radical. What are you going to use a god who just is? And what he's saying is, I'm the one who's always existed. I'm the creator God. Gets even more interesting as after the Exodus occurs, and they walk on the mountain. We'll go back to that Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Go ahead and go to that for me. He says this. Now, the God spoke, and God spoke these words saying, I am the I am, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the creator God, and I've done something for you, and so I want to do something. In the ancient world, when a king came and said, I've done this thing, I want to talk, I want to, I want to give you guys a contract. It was called a caesarean covenant, um, the caesarean king contract, whatever. But in the, if you're an Egyptologist, you're right in with me. You're like, yeah, that's so cool. All the rest of us are like, what? So the, the idea of a caesarean contract was that the king would come after having done a great thing for his people and he'd say, now that I've done this great thing, we're entering into a covenant together. You, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you this. And so they would produce this contract, this covenant between the king and the people. This is never done between gods. Gods didn't care about people to make covenants. The ancient Near Eastern gods of Babel, they sat around and guess what they loved to do? They, they looked at human beings as a bunch of noise and so they wanted to kill them. So they had fun with them. They thought of them as their servants and poked at them and played with them. Same thing with the Greek gods. Same thing with the, with the uh, Egyptian gods. You didn't have a good relationship with your god. You at least went to the priest to appease the god so he wouldn't whack you or play with your life because he thought it would be fun. Here is a God who shows up and says, listen, I've just set you out of, free out of slavery. I let you go, and I love you guys, is what he's saying. So let's, let's make a covenant together. And what you see is he lays out the Ten Commandments, the rules of the covenant. This is also odd. In the ancient world, we can go, oh, look, maybe, anybody ever heard of Hammurabi? Anybody here heard of the name Hammurabi? You took a class in Egyptology or whatever. And so Hammurabi was this interesting king in the ancient world who literally formed a code. And many people love to take that code and hold it up next to the Old Testament code and say, see, look how much they're alike. 
Moses just stole Hammurabi's code, Hammurabi's code, whatever, and, and plugged it into the Bible. Well, the weird thing about this is you would exp- all, we have all kinds of laws given, but they're always given by kings. They're never given by gods. Gods don't show up and give laws. Why is the God who says he exists showing up to give a law? Why is the God who exists showing up saying, here are the 10 standards by which all the rest of the law is going to come out of. Here are the 10 principles, the 10. And the first one is you don't have any other gods before me. Well, that seems kind of narrow until you start thinking in the terms of covenant. See, if you're married, you know what a covenant is. Now, in our culture, we've kind of washed down the covenant language of marriage. We've turned it into like just kind of a better friendship. You just got a better friendship than everybody else with this person. In a lot of our culture, that's what it is. Oh, I got a good friendship. It's really going well. Don't like the friendship anymore. See you later. Divorce. You know, and that's, that's the worst case scenario of our culture's example of marriage. Marriage, as we know in the church, is something that's supposed to be separate. It's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be covenanted. It's a life bond. It's something that is so radical and so tight. You're supposed to work at it. In fact, when you start thinking of it in those terms, you start hearing things like this. You shall have no other wife beside me. And you go... That makes sense. All the guys are like, huh, okay. You know, my wife comes up to me, you can't have any other women. I'm it. Well, that sounds like a marriage. Okay, got it. You know what? Don't objectify me. Don't turn me into an object. Don't turn me into something else. I don't want to be an object of your, I, I'm, I am yours. I want to be a person to you. You know, have you, guys, have you ever heard your wife say that? Stop objectifying me or something like that. Maybe not in our culture, but... It's true. God's saying, don't turn me into an object. Don't make me into an idol. I'm greater than that. I'm not just something you put on a shelf. I'm not, the, our wives are not the trophy wives. We just walk in and say, see how amazing she is? <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> That's not good. Thirdly, don't put my name on something that I didn't do. And, you know, us guys, we'll blame our wives for all kinds of stuff. We're like, oh, I didn't do it. She did it. You know, it's like, oh, my kids are, uh, uh, I like, my wife likes it organized. I'm not, I'm not the bad guy here right now. And my wife comes up and she's like, what are you doing? That's not what I want. From, that's not how we want our relationship to work. Don't t- take my name in vain is what she's saying. What God is doing in the Ten Commandments is he's laying out the very covenant relationship of how we're to live. And God cares about how we live with him and he cares about how we live with each other. You know what's odd about that? That, creates, that? that shows us there's moral absolutes. We would expect that from a creator God. A God who puts laws on partic- particles has turned to us and says, you have laws that work for you guys as well. My friend, uh, my friend Andy, he's a hairdresser. He'll have conversations with various people who he cuts hair with. And over the years, he's watched it change. When he started, he would he'd talk to kids and he'd be talking to them about something that's right or wrong. And, and they would say, and he'd say, well, you know, this, I think this behavior is wrong. And they would say, oh, I, I, I think it's okay. I think that's fine. I don't know why somebody would think it's wrong. He's like, oh, okay, so you don't believe, you believe it's right for them and wrong for them. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much relative. He says, well, what about Hitler? You know, what they did, they thought was right in their culture. You don't think, and you think what this is right in your culture. Don't you see these things attached? And they go, yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Today it's not like that at all. He said it was a couple years ago where it shifted. He would use the Hitler thing where he's trying to say, guys, you think this behavior is wrong or right because your culture says it is. But Hitler said the, the killing Jews was right because his culture said it was. And they, and they sit back in the chair and they go, yeah, that's probably true. So you think Hitler was okay in doing that? Yeah, for his culture. 
And it's radically shifted because we've gotten rid of moral absolutes. When you lose moral absolutes, it gets weird like that. Whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. As long as you've got a group of people tell you it's okay. But God comes and he says, no, these, there are 10 standards. Let's just lay these out. It's not okay for anybody to kill any, to murder anybody. It's not okay for murder to occur. And what we discover is we go around the world and we meet cultures is that every culture has some kind of statute that says it's not okay to murder. When we start seeing that and we have something that we all agree is above culture, is above ourselves, is above everything else, you end up with a moral absolute. It's something we ought to do. Well, that's a rule. That's a law. And you need a lawgiver. And strangely enough, the creator God who says I exist is also now showing up saying here's the rules. After he's done this big thing where he's built a very clear identity that I have saved these people out so you can see who I am. So all this comes together to say, who is this God that created? He says, I've identified myself. I'm the God of the Exodus. I'm the one who brought the Israelites out. I then gave law to show you guys, but the Exodus is what I've done. So how do we know the Exodus has even happened? I mean, isn't it some, I've heard time and time again, people say that, you know what, Exodus, you can't find any archaeological information about it. Maybe you went to college and they told you, oh, we don't have any information about that. Guess what? We have t- plenty of information about the Exodus. Most people who say that have studied 100-year-old or, or older information. And so we're going to look at some little bit, bits of this Exodus information because I want you guys to be sure that when we talk about the God of the resurrection, we're also talking about the creator God. When we talk about the creator God, we're talking about the God of the Exodus, the God who brought the Jews out, gave the Ten Commandments, and this is the God we're looking at. So let's start here. There are three minimal evidences, three minimal facts that come, but we're going to begin first with what are we talking about? The Exodus happened in roughly 1446 BC, you know, give or take a few years, but 1446 BC, and the reason why is the Jews kept a calendar date of this going. And so they came to a point in the time of Solomon where in 1 Kings it reads like this. 1 Kings chapter 6. Go ahead. Throw it up. Got it? Thank you. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he, gave, he began to build the house of the Lord. Okay, anybody find the chronology there a little tight? They know the date, the month, and everything else, and they've said it's 480 years after the people came out of the land of Egypt. We know roughly this date is around in the 900s, and when you zero back, you wind up all the way in the 14, in 1446, 1440s. This is interesting because in that time period before 1446, we find that, the, that there were slaves for the Egyptians that were Jewish. And that's kind of interesting uh, because that's what the text would tell us we should find. When we dig into the ground, what we discover is actually you, you go to this area called Goshen. Goshen was, um, was not a made-up place. It was actually on the, on the east side of the Nile Delta. And it's kind of a muddy location. And so when they finally did find some structures, they were kind of surprised because what they found were not Egyptian structures. They found Canaanite structures. Now, if anybody knows... Canaanites were the ones who lived in the land that we now call Israel today. 
way back before in the 1400s and earlier. And these are the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all these different groups dwelled in this area. They were called the Canaanites. Well, there was a large group called the Hittites that had ruled the entire area. They had a very distinct architecture and a very distinct art type. And when we dig up the ground in this area, what we find, and where the Israelites were supposed to be living, what we find is this kind of structures, these Hittite, Canaanite kind of structures. And that's what we would expect because the Hebrews, the Israelites, grew up in that area and moved into Egypt. And so the second thing we discover are tombs with different kinds of Asiatic weapons. And this is not weaponry that the Egyptians use. But in this area, we find weapons that example that the Hittites would use or something like that. So it's some of those little pieces like that. The biggest one, however, is that they found a a document uh, with household names on it dating from around 1740 BC. And it has actual Hebrew names written through it. Hebrew names that we know. And so we see that this is a Hebrew group that is acting as slaves. In fact, this painting behind is one of those things that was discovered, and it's been shown, and they actually argue that this is showing Semitic or Hebrew slavery working on the cities of Pithom and Ramesses. So it's very interesting that a lot of these pieces float together to produce a very real picture that there was enslaved Jewish people prior to the Exodus. And so that's not necessarily a question. The oddity shifts when suddenly we, we start hearing about the Israelites wandering out away from Egypt. This is kind of the second minimal, minimal fact that I want to look at, is that the Israelites wandered from Egypt into Canaan around the, around the 1400s, in the 1400s period. Um, there's an Egyptian stella. They dug into the ground. They found an inscription. And in, on this Egyptian inscription, actually was talking about the fact that there are these groups of people called Yahweh's nomads roaming in the deserts. Yahweh's nomads. The name Yahweh is the name of God in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. It was known in this Egyptian quadrant around the time period that the Exodus was supposed to have happened. Second, we get some other interesting things happening. So we know these guys are wandering out there, but what, is, what, what happened? Now the Bible tells us there were these plagues. And what's strange is recently there was a, a, a few years ago, there was this priest named Epower, E-I-P-W-E-R. I don't know how to say that, Uper or whatever. But anyway, Epower wrote a, um, an interesting papyrus piece. And in it, he was chronicling a horrible disaster that had occurred to Egypt. At the beginnings of it, he starts writing about the horrible plagues that occurred. One of them was a ri- the river turned to blood. Another of them was that all the crops were decimated. A third one was that they had all kinds of, I believe it was hailstones or uh, fire and darkness. And then the last one that he talks about is this, what has been interpreted as a large rushing horde that had come into the city. But, but that's only interpreted because of how it's written. Notice how, listen how it's written. He says, forsooth, the children of princes are dashed against the walls. The prison is ruined. He who, has, he who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. It is groaning that is throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. Now, you can't interpret that as a war. What's strange though is it happens immediately after these plagues. And that's the same concept of what happens. They're saying that everybody's mourning the loss of someone. That the princes to the dungeon are mourning. Someone's dead. Well, let me read to you how it says in Exodus chapter 12. It says, The Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. 
There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. This interpretation could easily be shown that Epower was writing about this massive plague situation that had occurred. Shortly after this, we do know that we have these these guys roaming around out there somewhere. We're not quite clear what they're doing out there. But what's strange is the pharaoh at the time would have been Amenhotep II. The next pharaoh is Amenhotep IV. Where's the third? He was the older brother of the son. He was the older brother of this Amenhotep IV. And he didn't make it to the throne because he died of a young age. Amenhotep IV comes and takes over, even though it was expected. To make matters even stranger, Amenhotep IV changes his name to a name called Akhenaten. Akhenaten is one of the most despised pharaohs in Egyptian history. And the reason why is Akhenaten actually threw away the pantheon of gods that all the Egyptians had believed in and rose up and said, there is one god named Aten, and we shall worship him alone. It's considered the time of monotheism, within Egypt. Why would it rise up after the death of a brother, strange surroundings that occur, and the Israelites have now left? We don't see any signs of Israelite slavery after that. In fact, what we discover is in the 1400s, they started digging in the ground for the fourth, the third minimal fact, which is this, that Israel arrives in Canaan about 1400 BC. They show up on the scene because what we find is we show up at this place called Jericho and we dug it up out of the ground. And at the layer at 1400 BC, we find these walls and it's the walls of Jericho and they're not fallen inward, they had fallen outward. To the shock and the interest of the archaeologists in the 1940s, they're looking at it and they're going, what is this? Layered at 1400 BC, the walls had fallen outward, as the scripture says. In fact, they marked the, the conquest of all of the area of Canaan as, as, a, as the dividing line between two time eras. Because when you go into this time area over here, and you look at all the digs, you find big walled cities. You go on this side of it, and they're all little provincial towns. Something destroyed all of them. The only, the only reference we have in this time period is what Joshua's conquest did in the, four, in the 14 and, and thir, late 1300s B.C. Or early 1300s B.C., however that works. And what's going on here is a picture of Hebrew slavery, odd events that occur as the Israelites are wandering into a very reality that these men have come into, into the Canaanite territory and destroyed things. According to the Armna letters written by Amenhotep to another priest back and forth, they describe the Hebrews, the Habiru, as destroying the Canaanites in very similar terms as we see in the book of Joshua. Guys, this story isn't made up. It's not just based on a true story. It is the story. And the archaeology is showing this. And so when the Lord stands before the people and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, he's trying to address something very specific, very powerful to get people's attention. He said, well, that's nice. All that could have happened without God's intervention. Well, I agree. You could think of it that way. And yet then there's that pesky sea crossing. And as much as people want to put it up in these lakes and stuff and, and have pharaohs riding through and get stuck in mud and they just can't go after them, you, the Bible says that they walk through the center of the Red Sea. Now, that, there are two, if you know anything about the Sinai Peninsula, pretend there's the Sinai Peninsula. Over here is Egypt. This is Saudi Arabia. That land, little thing between the Sinai Peninsula and Saudi Arabia, is called the Red Sea. 
in the Gulf of Aqaba. Right about in the middle of it, there seems to be a location that's been revered as a, as a crossing location that they've done some looks at. And I'm pretty convinced by this. They went into the waters and they dove in and they discovered something interesting. And I want to show you what those are. Go ahead and look up at the screens. In the spring of 2000, a robotic camera was lowered into these waters for the first time. This has never been done. No one has been in the area at all with a remote control camera. The robotic camera's survey revealed many shapes and objects familiar to Muller, including coral formations with right angles, arches, disks, and straight shafts fused into larger masses that had the appearance of twisted wreckage. Now, when we have been able to go back and forth with a remote control camera, we can repeatedly see that these strange structures we are looking for are there, not at one place, but you see them again and again and again. There are situations where you see something that looks like an axle, a hub, something that looks like a wheel, and you say to yourself, this is not a coral reef, this is a coral growth on an artifact. And that is what's different to me when I compare corals at other locations around the world. Since the earliest explorations at Nueva, one distinctive type of formation has often been identified on the seafloor. A slender, table-like structure, sometimes standing on end, with a coral-encrusted base, a straight shaft, and a circular top. It's a 90-degree angle, a right angle, between something that looks like an axle and the wheel. And you can see this in different varieties, and it looks very different from normal coral growth. And uh, it is like a man-made structure with a coral growth on it. In the midst of them, Pan Chien photographed this circular object attached to what appears to have been a broken axle or hub. This discovery was significant for two reasons. Pantien had documented the coral-encrusted form of a wheel with dimensions similar to ancient Egyptian artifacts directly across from the proposed Nueva crossing site. Her find also provided independent confirmation of earlier evidence establishing wheel-like formations on both coasts of the Red Sea in accordance with descriptions in the biblical record. And the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army, and he made the wheels of their chariots come off. That scripture is found in the Red Sea crossing section. They would memorialize it in a song as the Lord had thrown the rider and the chariots into the sea. And so what we have is this reality, these discoveries that are being found that continue to link the biblical narrative to the realities of our world. Guys, this story is a, showing, is a sign showing the God who created is the very God who led the Israelite, Israelites out. In fact, they reset their calendar 
to this very event. It's how important it is. In Exodus chapter 12, it reads this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And then it says, if somebody doesn't have enough for a lamb, invite them into your home and share it. And your lamb will be without blemish, male, a year old. You take it from the sheep and the goats. You're going to keep it until the 14th day. So you live with it for four days. And when the whole day, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh at night, roasted in the fire, and they need to do it quickly. Not, not, they need to not prep it, just put it on the spigot and roast it. And verse 10, you shall, and shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains in the morning you're going to burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You're going to eat in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This shall be a memorial for you. And so what he's saying is, look, this is a memorial feast called Passover. They just had it a few weeks ago. They've been practicing this for thousands of years. In testament to what God had done for them in releasing them from Egypt. And as they eat this and eat this, it rolled along until, a few th- until, a, until around 33 AD. And Jesus sits in a room with his disciples taking the same Passover. See, Jesus isn't some just mystic believer in all kinds of gods. He was a faithful Jew. Who argued that the God of the creation was the God of the Exodus and he was there participating in it. A faithful Jewish man taking the very elements and what's different for Jesus is that he took those elements and he reinterpreted them. And in essence he said the blood, this cup is my blood, this bread is my body. In other words, he began to identify himself as the Passover lamb. And scriptures are very clear from that point on that the disciples saw him as the Passover lamb. They saw him as God's provision, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity, that if we would put our faith in Jesus Christ who rose from the dead, put our faith in Jesus Christ who gave his life like the Passover lamb, his blood would cover over us and the wrath that is to come from God would pass us over. And that is the picture. The creator God's been insulted. He said what his moral code was, but we broke it. And so there is a division between us and him. And so the only way to overcome that was to have God pass over it with a sacrifice. And that's what Jesus did. And God rose Jesus from the dead to show that very thing. And so the link from the creator through the exodus to Jesus, who is the faithful Jewish man upholding the true Passover, And giving himself as the Passover lamb and resurrected from the dead is the link that we need to see that the gods aren't all just out there. There's one God. And this one God has done a great lot to get our attention and to show us that we can be saved, not by our works, but by a gift through his Passover lamb, his son, Jesus Christ. Guys, we can be confident in the gospel. We can be confident in the Bible. We can be confident he answers our prayers as we'll see next week as well. Would you bow your heads with me?
You know, maybe today you've been a, one of those people here, you've been examining and thinking through the faith, and all maybe you've moved just one step over. You've gone, yeah, I see, maybe there's a resurrection too. Okay, I see that there's, there's a God, but now I see that this God has spoken to us through a people in Israel, and that, that leads you back to Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah, who rose from the dead. Why did he do that? To give you the gift of the forgiveness of sins. Think about the Ten Commandments for a second. Think about it and realize we've broken those. We've harbored wrath and anger towards our brothers and sisters. We've ignored the one creator God and haven't worshipped him. We have broken so many of these and we've done it so willingly and so willfully. And yet God is coming with his wrath and he says, I'm being patient. I don't want to crush you. So I gave you my son Jesus as your Passover lamb to bear the wrath for you. So I will pass you over. Not only that, he does that so you can make a covenant with you. So that you can have not just the creator God not crush you, but that he can relate with you and become a relationship where you become his and he becomes yours. That is all given to you through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And that is received by trusting God's promise. This morning, maybe that's where you're at. It's time to trust. It's time to say, you know what? I've got enough. I need to just take that step and finally lean on the promise of God and trust that Jesus has borne my sins and trust that Jesus has risen from the dead to give me a new life. And trust that my relationship with God is made right through him. If that's where you're at this morning and it's time for you to make that decision, would you share that decision with me by putting your hand up? You're saying, yes, I'm making that decision. I'm going to trust that Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sins. Amen. Amen. And if you're there, you've got the ability, and I would ask that you would just speak to God for yourself. But if you're not quite sure really how to to phrase it, I'm just going to pray, and you can join with me. And It's just a prayer where you're saying, God in heaven, I know that I've sinned. I ask that you'd forgive me. I trust that you have given Jesus to me as my Passover lamb. That he took the wrath for me and that you raised him from the dead so I could have a relationship with you I trust you I'm ready to follow you for the rest of my life in Jesus name Amen